podcast is brought to you by Welcome all you QT faithful to your monthly hymnal devotional, where each month we sit down and take an intense look at one of the majestic soundtracks from the Tarantino-verse. I'm your host, the Reverend Scott K, and it is my pleasure to welcome back to the show one half of the podcast nobody asked for, some would say the better half, Mr. Graham Jones is returning, and together we will be giving a thorough examination of the tracks that reside on the Inglorious Bastards soundtrack. Welcome back, Mr. Jones and May Tarantino. Be with you always. How are you doing? And I absolutely agree. Yes, now that we've shed... We've shed the extra, you know. You know. <laughs> We've lanced off the tumor, and now, uh, you know, hey, you're Good here. Flan solo. Yeah, yeah. The, you've, you've released the Florida from your, <laughs> from your This pocket. is, this is, um, I mean, that's a, that's a, there's, there's some pre-referential stuff you're yes, going to have to edit yes. in there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's it's a bit. I'm I'm, I'm uh, the training wheels are off. Yeah. I think the last time I did this, I did Cage Rage. Cage Rage. Daryl. You do Daryl. Yeah, I know yeah. Daryl. Yeah. He a doesn't long... like Tarantino. I don't think he doesn't want to come on my podcast. He's too good. I'm just kidding. I don't even know. No, <laughs> I really asked him. I guess you should. <laughs> I was going to say what? Fuck that guy. Uh, <laughs> no. Um. I've yes. I think that's the last time. Actually, no. I tell a lie. We did that together. Yeah. I think this might be my first. First, uh, there you go. Your first, first go. venture out, yeah. Anything and could happen. Crazy <laughs> enough that it's been a year since I've had either of you on. Yep. Because we did Inglorious Bastards last year around this time, and we did. here we are back at Inglorious Bastards. And you two will actually be joining me later in November. You'll be on the under the influence for the Hateful Eight, and we'll yep. tell people then what we're doing, so they don't need to know. And then I'm thinking you'll definitely be on next season. I haven't announced next season yet to the listening audience but Uh-oh. we'll keep that under wraps for now but yes i have a feeling you'll be on and we'll see if ian because ian is deciding to just a month after this podcast comes out he's gonna he has duped a female into yeah. saying yes to marrying him so congratulations to him well done you told the right amount of lies you were able to fool this young lady and good for you you told her that you didn't care about welsh rugby and she bought it and now she's Getting hitched to you, and you're going to be the best man, from what I understand. Yeah, yeah, we've got the uh, the bachelor party in a few weeks as well, so ah. we, we, we may well we may well have some tales by the time. Where, the where is the bachelor goes. party being held? We're going to York, um, so okay. northern northern town in the UK. Which would um, yeah, because I live in New York, and you're in you old yeah, York. Yeah. Yes, we're in the old we're in the old one. Uh, you, we've got obviously we're going to go up the old Empire State Building. We're yep. going to see the old yeah. Statue of Liberty. Yes. 
Um, up the old Hudson River. <laughs> the old oh, Hudson those River. days. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sadly, uh, well, funny, I actually live, uh, I was born in a town just outside of Syracuse called Liverpool, New York. Okay. And we had uh, Paul McCartney here last June on his tour, and he made mention of the fact that Liverpool was about seven miles away from where he was performing. So just uh-huh. a little Beatles, you know. I don't want to say yeah, we're yeah. the Beatles, but we're Beatles adjacent. You know, that's fun. You know? I didn't. I, I, I wasn't sure the Beatles uh, risk stepping in New York anymore after old uh, Paul John. Well, I, I mean, look at Paul doesn't mind. <laughs> I'm just saying, <laughs> look, I'm not in conspiracy theorist, but hey, things turned out pretty good for Paul. Just saying. <laughs> I'm saying just um, don't trust anybody named Yoko. You know, maybe. Well, have you seen it completely off topic, which is something I do a lot. This is what we do in Tarantino um, World anyways. There's there's a fantastic video of uh, John Lennon, Yoko Ono, and I can't remember who else is playing with them. They're, they're, anyway, they're playing the song, and she just starts warbling, and it makes no, like, it, it adds nothing. If, if anything, it brings the tone of everything down. And whoever the guy is that they're playing with, who I've got a lot of respect for, but cannot remember for life me who it was, uh, just gets the mic cut. So you can see, like, <laughs> you can see her still trying to warble on, but nothing's coming through, and it's fantastic. I'm going to go on a limb. Yeah, I'm going to say that not only is Yoko owner responsible for the end of the Beatles, yeah. but she may also be responsible for modern mumble rap. Just saying, <laughs> just saying, could be, could be. Anywho, you're not here to talk about those things. Chuck Berry. John Lennon and Chuck Berry. Chuck Berry car off. Wow. There you go. Yeah. Chuck Berry had enough of Yoko's Yeah. Shit. Yeah. He's like, who's this bitch? <laughs> <laughs> How many albums has she sold? I don't know who this fucking bitch is. Get the fuck out of here. Oh, good old Yoko. May she rest in peace when that happens. All right. You, sir, though, have added a Ono to your... Family, if I'm not mistaken, since the last one I was yes. here. Yes, yeah, this is true. Yeah, a lot can happen in a year. A lot, a lot. <laughs> Some say it takes nine months. <laughs> Some say, yeah, they do. Um, yes, yeah, we we are we are with child. Uh, he's yeah, just coming up to five months old. Everything has changed. <laughs> yes, and everyone tells you it will, and you're like, whatever. And then yeah. you go, motherfucker, they're right. And yeah. now, who you were. Nine months ago is no longer that person anymore. And in 18 to 20 years, you look back and go, God, I remember that man. I don't know what happened to him. You look back at photos. You listen back to this podcast. Yeah. I still had heart and spirit. Yeah. And um, we were uh, just a slight preview to, so we, Ian and I recorded on Sunday, our latest episode, episode 102. Podcast oh. else for if you want to jump back into the archives. Uh-huh. Um, there's also a bunch of other bonus ones. Is um, that the Barbie one? Or the toys, the one about the toys the, coming the, up? The toys yes. one, yeah, yeah. Um, and Adult toys, I, am I mad? I thought it would be hilarious to choose a big fisting dildo as one of the toys that should have a film. To which Ian probably reminded me afterwards, you have a child, Graham. <laughs> you you need to be more mature than this. But well, I would like to say, maintain... that, Ian, um, as an adult, you obviously <laughs> don't give the child... The large fisting dildo, Ian. Hello. Just because it's a toy doesn't mean they have to play with them all. I'm just going to in there. I mean, you're a responsible adult. He's got a lot to learn. Yeah. What you do or don't do with a fisting dildo is your your, your business. It was a B-horror movie. That was was where I was going with it. And um, I think it will come up before this happens. Um, So, yeah, if you uh, anyone that hasn't listened to it. It's the new monkey paw. Exactly. Right? I'm doing. Yeah. I'm doing a bit of advertising for our podcast there here. But yes. anyone that hasn't listened to podcasts, to be asked for. That's a flavor of it, right? We we I spoke at length about how a um, the sex toy manufacturer screwed over the intern who modeled for the fist. Ooh. He dies in a tragic accident. 
he then he was fisted. Every yeah, why not? <laughs> uh, he then he then um, inhabits every uh, fist that they then produce, and they kind of go wild and kill. So it's Chucky meets it's basically Child's Play meets yeah, the toy, yeah. doll toy industry. I like this. Exactly. This is great. Yeah, yeah. look, so, if it doesn't um, work. In Hollywood, Brazzers <laughs> is looking for new ideas, so I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, um, coming probably not coming to a cinema near you soon. So since we are here to talk about the Inglorious Bastards soundtrack, the reason that you are on mm. is because when you were on the podcast, we discussed your favorite needle drop, and we discussed a certain English gentleman who's no longer with us, and yep. his song that is on this, and that being mm-hmm. one of your not only favorite songs on the album, but also, which I'm giving away maybe an answer later on, but also one of your favorite needle drops in cinema history. Is that yep. still a belief you hold? And do you have a brief explanation of why that is your belief? Yeah, I do. And also, as things transpire later, um, you'll realize how much of a hypocrite I am as well. Um, but we, we can come to that. Fantastic. It is, it's just so... Uh, it's such a great song. First and foremost, it's such a great song. But then uh, I just think it just fits so perfectly with the scene, right? And it's it it builds and it builds and you've kind of got everything coming on and you know and it is it's on the nose, right? Putting out fires of gasoline behind the perfect green eyes or whatever lyric. Like it is it is so on the nose, mm-hmm. which you know, and this is why I'm going to be call myself hypocrite because there's some <laughs> of the other things in this soundtrack that we're going to talk about where I say it's a bit too on the nose, and maybe I just <laughs> give it a pass because it's Bowie, and you know, I love Bowie. My dog's called Bowie. Like I, I I'm not gonna. I, there's there's a bias here without a doubt, but I just think it's it's so good. It's definitely up there. There are some fantastic. I was list in preparation for coming on here. I was listening to your Pulp Fiction. Uh, mm. One of these, and uh, talking about, um, I can never pronounce it, Merselu. Miserlu. Yeah, it's fine. Yeah. Uh, you, can, you can pronounce aluminium, but Miserlu is just getting past you. It's fine. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But that is probably the best needle drop in cinema ever, I think. Oh, I like, like that. The way, and also with that, and, and we might talk about this later, that and uh, Steeler's Wheel for. Um, Reservoir Reservoir Dogs. Dogs. Those songs so entwined with those movies. I cannot hear Mercy without thinking Pulp Fiction. I can't hear Steelers Will without thinking of Reservoir Dogs. Whereas maybe because I had exposure to Bowie, Bowie before early, I'd seen yeah, Inglorious Bastards. It's not quite as intermeshed, right? So it's up there, and I love it. And we'll talk about it probably in more detail later. But and it's weird. They they tend to all be Tarantino <laughs> related because <but>, <laughs> he does music so well, right? And you know, he truly and does. And again. We'll get onto it again later, yeah. I'm sure, but he's the reason <laughs> I have God knows how many movie soundtracks on vinyl. And this one, it's 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 hard to find. You you can't find it on. You, I don't think they even had the full track listing on the Spotify playlist I listened to. It's not available at any. I think maybe one song's available on Apple Music. Like it's so strange how much of the music is not available due to obviously the fact that. He borrowed it. So if you want to buy the album, that's one thing. But if you yeah. want to try to stream it or even buy it like on iTunes, im fucking possible to do. It's a very frustrating album. Very frustrating. And it's the one that doesn't have any dialogue tracks. It's a yeah, first. The first. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. 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 So I went through, I did a combination of YouTube playlists and yep. Spotify to kind of res- listen back through this. But I um as soon as I'd finished, I ordered the vinyl. I ordered a special edition blood red vinyl. Oh um, yes, yes. It was like I need this. Yes. Like, it really, 
it, yeah, I, I fell in love with it. It's a great set. I know I always known it's a great soundtrack, but spending the time on it that I did in prep for this. Mm-hmm. And also never this is this probably this sounds like sacrilege from someone who has a film podcast. I never really appreciated any name Morricone as much as I should have mm-hmm. until I properly listened to the tracks on this album. And as I've been going through this journey of all the soundtracks, like officially going through it, it seems as if it was fate that the man would win his only Oscar doing a soundtrack for a man who brought him back to life. And I know for a long time, Ennio, there was like a lost in translation kind of thing where everyone thought that Ennio hated Tarantino kind of thing, but it was just a, he didn't understand being an older Italian man, didn't understand why Tarantino was using his music. Like he had, there was just some translation problem there where he didn't get what was happening until eventually they worked together. So I just think it was like this poetic justice that the man who really introduced all of us of a certain age back to this music, especially if, you know, you don't have parents who were like... My my partner on the Cheeky Bastard, Steve Smith, and I think Sean Wheeler as well has also been on, they kind of grew up with the Spaghetti Western. That was not something my father watched. So I didn't grow up with Spaghetti Westerns. So I didn't know Ennio Morricone until Tarantino introduced him to me. And that was like, you know, in the late 90s, early 2000s when he started to really cherry pick his stuff and put them in. And I just think it's amazing that the guy wins his own, which is astounding, thinking of the music that he has come up with, you know. How is that not one? How did that not win anything? How is that like one of the most famous spaghetti westerns that you don't even need to know what that is, but everyone's heard that tune. Like everything yeah, that's yeah. ever westernized on TV uses that. But that he finally wins for the Hateful Eight, which is just fantastic. And I, I'm so happy that he was. It just, I don't know, it just feels like this real synergy that the universe got together and said, you know what? We're going to have this guy win for the guy who loved him the most. Is you know, So kind of cool. Kind of fucking cool. And is Hateful Eight the first, and I may be showing ignorance here, the first like properly fully scored Tarantino soundtrack from start to finish? Yes, it is. It's the yeah. first and only score. And only, yeah. Because that's, that's so, he borrowed, mm-hmm. like, ever since the start, he's borrowed from everything, right? That's That's yes. been his MO. Yeah. And then, yeah, Hateful Eight, he scored Yep. It. And this one we're about to talk about, Inglorious. I mean, obviously it's not the, but it really, like, there's very few needle drops as far as your regular sourced music in this one as opposed to a lot of the other ones we go through. I mean, obviously, this and Hateful Eight are the two heaviest. Obviously, that was scored with a few needle drops, and this one is selected score with a few needle drops. Yeah. But everything else is kind of a, you know, after Jackie Brown becomes a bit of a, well, I actually say after Death Proof becomes a bit of a mix, because Kill Bill's got that, happens in it, then Death Proof goes back to his old-fashioned way of just all needle drops, and then he moves forward. So, yeah, yeah. yeah and we'll get right into it now. And now it's time to reach out to your pews and pull out your Church of Tarantino hymnal as we begin our devotional with the soundtrack. From Inglorious Bastards. This soundtrack was released on August 18th, 2009 by Maverick Records. It features 14 tracks from various artists and has a running time of 37 minutes and 14 seconds. This is the first Tarantino soundtrack that doesn't feature a single dialogue track. The album was nominated for a Grammy Award for Best Compilation Soundtrack Album for Motion Picture, Television, or Other Visual Media. Our first track, and also something interesting too about this first track, it's The Green Leaves of Summer by Nick Perito and his orchestra. 
This song was written by Paul Francis Webster with music by Dimitri Tomokin for the 1960 film The Alamo. It was performed on the film's score by the vocal group The Brothers Four, and in 1961 was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Song and won a Golden Globe for the same category. The song has been re-recorded by numerous artists, with Nick Perito's version being the one that was used for this film. And this song plays over the opening credits, which is one of the few moments in the Tarantino-verse where the opening credits aren't really done over anything but a black screen. Yeah. There's usually like a cold open and then some credits that happen or it opens up like in Django we open right up with Django walking Reservoir Dogs we have the talk the you know the whole dynasty but then we have the cool walkout Pulp Fiction does an old intro then we do a double song in the like it's the only movie that I could remember of his that starts off with we got titles and then we get into the movie like the old way used to be you know you have, you have your titles and you sit there and you watch everyone's name come up and then you're like oh, I don't fucking care about that guy you know I mean? yeah 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 <laughs> like, fuck that guy <laughs> but the other the wildest thing with this right is like you say you have no if if you saw these credits and you didn't know what film you were watching you would be thinking you're about to watch a western yes and you you really are everything yeah. he makes does feel there's a there's a spaghetti western vibe for a lot of his films yeah, you're never confused as to where he's leaning on certain things. But you don't think, you don't hear this song. No, and in Glorious Bastards, it could very well be, if you don't even know what the movie's about, It could. that's a great title for a Western, right? Like, yeah, he, yeah, and you're like, I'm not about to go into a World War II no, epic. No, no, and we're <laughs> definitely not killing Hitler. That's not happening. No. No, Hitler's, he's going to survive. <laughs> Anyone checked on Hitler lately? Is he still okay? <laughs> I think he's running for office uh, in uh, the may, US. Right? He, which state? You pick <laughs> one. Uh, yeah, he may well be. Yeah, it's just a, this amazing, quiet, open, and but like everything I've said, it's intentional, right? Like he's setting mm-hmm. up that this is going to be a western, and we just don't know who the characters of this western are. And technically, it does have this good, the bad, and the ugly vibe to it, right? Yeah. Like good is Shoshana, bad I would say is Hans Landa. And the ugly yeah. are the bastards, right? Like, like they, they, they do what they need to do, the necessity. Like what Hans Landa says later, some might call a terrorist plot. Like, because it's an Americanized film, told from an American standpoint, heroic. Told from a different standpoint, not heroic at all. Like, I was in the war 20 years ago, and we invaded, whether people want to say it or not, Iraq. Yes, yeah, yeah. we trumpeted it as, we're there to give them freedom. But if you live in Iraq, you're like, these motherfuckers are invaders. Right? Like, I, how am I not an invader it's, of the country of Iraq if I'm there for over 11 years? Right? Like, yeah, yeah. So it's, it's always it's, perspective. It's, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's the, it's, and it goes back to the whole kind of history is written by the victors, right? That's, that's, yes, it is. Big, yeah. Big, big part of it. But yeah, it's an interesting point because in theory, you know, what is, what's terrorism to, to some people is, mm-hmm. is you know, us trying to, uh, make stand and get freedom for our people from the other side mm-hmm. so it's the yeah, old star it's... wars people on the death star there were workers up there and they were Absolutely. killed they were blown up that's a terrorist attack <laughs> <laughs> you call them rebels i'll call them terrorists <laughs> but it's interesting because it does lead to our first official song on screen which is the verdict or la condonia mm. sure i'm butchering it but it just feels nice from ennio morricone this song originally appeared in the 1967 spaghetti western, The Big Gun Down, starring Lee Van Cleef and Tomas Milan, and was one of Tarantino's favorite spaghetti westerns. I debate in my head what's the best this next. Since it's not the opening song, it can't be the best opening song. But of all the Ennio selections, given how this song plays and the classical music intertwined with the 
spaghetti western music and yeah. the visuals of this scene, the opening of this scene. I don't know that there's a better moment in Tarantino's filmography than the marriage of this selected piece of score with the visuals that we're seeing. Yeah. You know, he's out there chopping wood and then and then it goes into the the guitar and she pulls back the curtain and you see the motorcade the SS motorcade coming up and we already know by his his face it's like it's got that whole gunslinger thing going for him and he knows that he's like the outlaw on the run technically in this moment he is the outlaw considering what the SS believe and where they're coming from right and they're the sheriffs rolling in and he's the outlaw and and you just, it's just that moment. We have no idea what's about to happen or why this is the opening of the movie and the first time you see it, but your asshole is puckered tight because you, you go, you're like, oh, fuck, Some, something terrible is about to happen. It's haunting, isn't it? I think that's. that's... It's like the Jaws theme, right? It's that, yeah, like, yeah. you know, like, we haven't seen the shark yet, but that sound, you're like, oh, fuck. <laughs> you just, there's just dread. I also find the other thing about it was that it's it's so jarring right because it's a take on like you say it's the classical meeting the sort of spanish guitar Mm -hmm. western music and it so it's fair released by beethoven is the Mm -hmm. but you're expecting it to go into the Mm -hmm. but it's not it it stops and it cuts and a it's really jarring right because Mm -hmm. that that beethoven music is in it everyone knows that right and you know what's coming but it doesn't and that is that's jarring. But mm-hmm. also, I feel like that this is, and maybe I'm reading too much into this, but I feel like this is Tarantino setting us up for what's happening in the movie. Because you know what's coming in World War II, but you don't in Inglourious Bastards because it Just changes. like this scene. You don't know what's coming in the scene. Yeah, yeah. You don't know who's coming in that fucking car. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like yeah, We yeah. have no idea who's rolling up. We do not know we're about to meet one of the greatest villains ever created in the history of cinema. With Hans Landa. We have no idea that the amazing Christoph Waltz is finally going to announce himself to the world as one of the finest actors to ever breathe. And this guy, this La Petite, is just standing. And his, he looks like he just stepped off the screen of an old Western. Doesn't like his, just his whole look is fantastic. And you've got his young daughters there. And there's something about, I don't mean this in any disrespect to anyone, but there's something about when you see a man by himself out in the woods and he's only got three dollars. Like there's this fear for their life that he is the only one standing between the wolf and them being hurt. You know what I mean? Like, I don't want to say that women can't, you know, I don't want anyone to get this like male chauvinist, like women can't handle themselves. Clearly I wouldn't be on the Tarantino possible. I believe that because Kilba is one of the greatest films of all time. And those women kick the fuck out of everybody. So I don't want anyone to take that. But when you like, when you got the Nazis coming up, you got this man standing there. All he looks like he has is an ax and you've got three young girls. If you aren't thinking, oh shit, like, the worst case scenario. He is the only thing standing between them and just absolute horror show, you know? And that's what that music kind of plays. Like it, it just, it just, it, your nerves are on edge before Lana yeah, even yeah. hops out of the vehicle. Yeah. And it was, you know, uh, but also during that time period as well, you're like, yes, yeah, maybe that, that is the, that whole vision. We're all thinking it. Rape and murder is going to happen. If Mr. Lapadie cannot somehow fight off these Nazis, like that's, what's coming that's, for them. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and they're yeah. attractive females for a reason. Like it is intentional that these women that he has chosen are attractive for a reason. Is so that it adds that element of like I don't. I'm not trying to be 
mean to people who are ugly. But you know, like if they look, <laughs> if they look like you know it's overweight, it gives a shit if, if they're, they're these ugly, ugly yeah, I mean, you know, I, I know it's terrible. I know now. it's Just terrible. Shoot them. I apologize, but it's like shoot the ugly Scott man. You see them and you and you go, okay, so they're attractive, and you think. This is the Nazis. They're just going to kill Lapidit, have their way, yeah. do what they want, and that's that burn this farm to the ground and move on to the next one. Right? Like, that's your first initial impression. And with being a Tarantino movie, yeah. that's a fucking possibility. You just never know. Anything's in play in a Tarantino movie. Anything is in play. If, if you've ever been a fan long enough, then, you, then you're not paying attention. But I just yeah. really enjoy the build of that song into the visuals. And then another disarming thing is then when Londa gets out, his happy, high-pitched voice throws you, right? Like, Mr. Lapaditsa, the guy who plays him, is a big guy. He's a, bur- oh. a burly man. He's got an axe. In the UK, we would describe a man of that stature as built like a brick shithouse. He's a geezer. He's got that <laughs> tough guy fucking... He's working for Bricktop, you know what I mean? He's the guy they send to bring him to Bricktop and put him in the fucking pig pen. And yet, he's scared. Right? Like, you see it in yeah. his face, the worry. And then we get Hans Landa to pop out, and you're kind of like, are you here to give us a golden ticket to go to fucking Willy Wonka? Like, he's got that kind of, like, just really nice guy demeanor. And you're like, I'm not afraid. And then, I know that's the other genius stroke of how Christoph plays him. Then we get, you know, into the further scenes, and you're just like, he makes a pipe and a glass of milk. Two of the scariest things you've ever seen in your life. Yep. Yeah. It's a, it's a true, true gem. But it takes us to song three, which is a song that was in... Kill Bill Volume 1, one half of it. It is White Lightning from Charles Bernstein. As reported on our hymnal devotional number six, this track comes from Bernstein's very first film score, the 1973 Burt Reynolds movie of the same name. Tarantino named the fake adult World War II movie The 14th Fist of McCluskey after Reynolds' character in the film, Gator McCluskey. And QT selected White Lightning as one of the first films shown at his very first ever film festival in Austin, Texas in 1996. If you are a Tarantino fan, I remember seeing the theater, hearing that and going... Wait a minute, that's from Kill Bill. Yeah. <laughs> that was the first time I'd heard another yeah. song be replayed, repurposed in another film. But it plays when Major Hellstrom arrives at Shoshana's movie theater, another asshole puckery moment, for a meeting he's going to invite her to <laughs> of her own free yeah. will with a private Zola. I always love that when she gets there. <laughs> oh, you're me. And he goes, get your ass in the car, and he smacks her ass. Such, They're just such great little moments in the films that just, they add, right? Like... Yeah. It adds to the character that he is. It adds to that element of tension where, you know, it's a sexist move, but it's done with such taunting. We all know who she is. He has no idea, but we're not sure if he does or not. And he just gives her that slap on the ass and you just fear for her. And it's just I don't know, it worked so well in the in um pulp or pulp fiction and kill bill that it just was like I don't know, it was like a warm blanket when you heard it again. You know what I mean? You're kinda of like, oh but it's another one that's like again, we're looking we're watching a World War Two period piece. We've gone from two songs that should be in Westerns and now this feels like it would be um my my first line uh on my notes here is the bass line is groovy as fuck. Because it truly is. And then you kind of kick into these like weird like jazz cafe drums in the background. Mm-hmm. There's something that sounds like a spring or a didgeridoo going on a bit <laughs> later. Like it's it's almost like a fucking music to a dream sequence. And then when the guitar kicks in, you do kind of feel like you're back in a Western again. Because yeah. it feels like it's like the kind of high noon dueling pistols kind of, kind of vibe to it. But I think until we're kind of like 
Where are we? So this is this is the third song on the, the album. This is, and yeah, I won't say third track because my friend fucking Pat Fournier has that piece of shit. Always remind you that there's... Actually, this might be the actual right way, Pat, because there's no fucking talking on this one. So fuck you, Pat. So this is actually the third track officially. And third song. But yeah. this is midway through the movie. We're in... Yeah, we're in the... So this is right before Operation Kino. So this is the middle yeah. of the point. This is chapter three of the film. But if you go through the track listing... I would, and we'll get onto this, but I think there's yeah. about you don't until about track seven. There is nothing where you would pick this song out and say that belongs in a World War Two movie. No. However, when, when I do next month, when we do Django and Chain, there's songs you go. I don't think this is in a fucking Civil War film <laughs> <laughs> or a film about slavery. You know what I mean? Yeah. You kind of go, huh? Is that Rick Ross? <laughs> <laughs> But to your point, it works, right? Like that's the yeah, one thing that I probably I, everyone's listened to this enough. Probably hear they're probably like, oh yeah, we get it. They're probably playing a drinking game. How many times is Scott gonna say it fucking works? This doesn't make sense that these should work. None of this should work, but it just does, and that's the real command. That's a real master. Scorsese does it too. He's and I think James Gunn is one of the newer directors out there who's able to marry his imagery with poppy songs, but it, it fit and not feel like just, oh, we got to throw the song in here for a reason. I'll tell you who I think is the best current director doing this. I think, is, is, he, is he English Bone? I was going to say, I almost remember because uh, Baby Driver, Edgar Wright and stuff he's yeah, done yeah. is just, but he's Edgar also a Tarantino, I don't want to say disciple, but he's a big fan. Yeah, yeah. And he's definitely, I don't want to say that Edgar Wright, I'm not going to discount him that he like does it because Tarantino did it. He does it in a completely different way. What he did with Baby Driver, I don't think Tarantino can do that. I don't think Tarantino no, has I mean, that ability. He wrote a musical that everything's yeah, yeah. based on. And I love Baby Driver. And I know they're coming out with the... Baby Driver too, so I'm going to see how that goes. But I love Baby Driver, and that is just brilliance. So he may have been influenced because Tarantino did it, but he's doing it on his own level. That's a whole different world himself. Yeah, but also, which is fun, right? You 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 have a podcast every month about the things that inspired Tarantino, and he's doing yeah. them his own way, right? That this yeah. is what happens. People exactly. get inspired, and they do do their own twist on things. But yeah, so back to Baby Driver. There's the there's the scene where they buy the guns in the warehouse, mm-hmm. and he's like, I also love the metaphor of like the you guys are experienced uh, butchers. You can. Uh, the, everything from the nose to the tail, yeah, the pig and stuff. The, the, it's brilliant, but you have the whole shootout, and it's to the tune of tequila. Tequila, yeah, that was made famous in Pee Wee Herman. R.I.P. Mr. Paul Rubens. Every gunshot is a beat of the song, and it's oh, I, uh, and explosions. A, tequila, yeah, 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 so good. Oh, it's brilliant. It's fucking brilliant. I love it. Anywho, <laughs> it's on to song four, which. A song that should not work, however, works brilliantly in the moment. It's Slaughter by Billy Preston. Billy Preston was an American keyboardist and singer-songwriter in the 1960s and 70s. He's only one of two non-Beatle musicians to be given a credit on a Beatles recording, that being 1969's Get Back. He was so integral to the group during the Get Back sessions, he was referred to as the fifth Beatle, and John Lennon even proposed the idea of having him join the band. Preston wrote this song for the 1972 Black Rotation film of the same name that starred the late great Jim Brown as the titular character. The song peaked at number 50 on the Billboard Hot 100 chart and reached number 17 on the Billboard's R&B chart. And it's the instrumental opening of the song that plays as we get the Hugo Stieglitz intro and him butchering all of the German uh, high command or under high command stooges that they have. And it literally, it's fantastic. If you listen to the beginning of the song, it runs right up to about where he's about to sing. And that's exactly how the freaking scene works out too. So it feels like it's a 
instrumental piece that he found somewhere. And yet, in reality, it's a real song. And once again, like you said, it's kind of on the nose when you listen to the song, the actual words and the name of the song and who they give it to. It's just like, boom. He's like, it was written for Hugo Stieglitz and Billy Preston just did not know. Yeah, which because it actually came from a black exploitation movie, right? Also called Slaughter. So Mm -hmm. yet again, we're in another song that should not be in a World War II movie. Yeah. But yeah, my first note for this was uh, this is a certified banger because mm-hmm. that those opening chords, man, are just yeah. something's gonna go down. I feel like it would feel more at home in like a Jack in Jackie Brown, yeah, than yeah, than uh, than this movie. But yeah, I just I love the. There's obviously like we can't get away from the the first scene in Ingrosh Bastards. It's one of the best scenes of all time in any movie. But this is one of my favorite sequences. It feels so tarantino in the middle of this film you've got the samuel jackson voiceover yep. you've got just the kind of quick cuts from all of the different kills it's graphic it's he doesn't do many montages but he did yeah. a pretty damn good one in this one so good absolutely loved it and it's also one of those songs that when you hear it if you didn't hear the the, the name of the artist and you heard the start it sounds like a late 60s maybe early to mid 70s rock song right and you're not expecting a black man to start singing after that right yeah. like because it just completely goes a whole different way after the beginning of that song you're thinking like maybe kiss is gonna start singing next thing you know it's like this these really nice harmonic voice of billy Preston. it just like it throws you as well like every piece uh-huh. of music he's picked so far just kind of throws you for a loop you're like wait a minute this is who's singing this song like this i almost felt like i was listening to some kind of classic rock it's funky as hell when it gets into it man it is yeah funky you don't see it coming you just don't see no. it coming. Just like you didn't see that scene coming. It is one of the better scenes. It's such a great fucking scene. Yeah. And it's got his own 70s porn-like titles for it, too. <laughs> so good. Oh, God. And some of the more brutal kills until you get to the end of the film. Yeah. Which, you were on the episode, you may remember, but uh, the actor there would not, because he was German, did not want to play a Nazi. And Tarantino yeah. promised him, every moment you're in a Nazi uniform, you will brutally be killing a Nazi. And that's how he signed up. I said, okay, I'll do it and I'll play Hugo. And sure enough, he kills a lot of Nazis in gruesome ways, and I love it. It's fucking fantastic. We need more of that. Just saying. Great movie. As they seem to be making a comeback. So might be time. Might be time (laughs) to get the bastards together and start collecting some fucking scalps, folks. Might be time. Maybe that's what I'll do when this podcast ends. <laughs> I'll go literal. That'll bring us to number five, The Surrender or La Reza. Once again, Mr. Ennio Morricone makes another track onto, I don't even know how many it is now in the Tarantino world. I probably should have started keeping track like a counter. Like this is number whatever. This song is the second Morricone song on this album and the second from one of Tarantino's favorite spaghetti westerns, The Big Gun Down. This song kicks in after the German sergeant refuses to tell Eldo where other German troops are located on the map and Eldo calls in the amazing Donnie the Bear Jew Donowitz played gloriously by Graham's favorite actor of all time. <laughs> Maybe the worst cast decision in history. I, yeah, just, is, is there one worse? Well, no, I mean, possibly not. But the thing that hurts me even more is that it could have been Adam Sandler. And I would just love to see Adam Sandler directed by uh, Tarantino, especially after Uncut Gems, right? Because Uncut Gems, everyone finally saw his acting chops and he was incredible. Well, the worst thing is I think he did Funny People. That's the movie he ended up doing instead. Such a trash I film. know, I know. He went and did Funny People. Poorly, poorly advertised because it wasn't funny at all, man. Everyone no. gets cancer. <laughs> And there were barely any people. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, but yes, it is a very haunting. 
uh, the little trumpets and you hear the bat hitting and you're That's like beautiful piece yeah, of music yeah man. it just builds and it builds and it's and haunting it though yeah no absolutely if i remember rightly because as discussed earlier since having a kid i've not actually been able to watch a film <laughs> all the way through so i haven't had a chance to rewatch. I, I did this the, the listen through but i haven't actually had a chance to rewatch in a while is there the minute the skull cracks the music stops i believe so the minute he hits him yeah and then you go back to the yes. kind of amb- ambient noise in the forest yes. and that's a really effective like that's really effective and eli roth the amazing academy award nominated actor eli roth he was actually i guess tarantino had him standing in that tunnel for quite some time and they kept like reshooting stuff they wanted him to build up this anger so that when he yeah. came out he would deliver the great speech he does as he did so oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, fucking maybe one of the worst boston accents ever uh Anyhow, but yeah, it was uh, it's a fun moment. Like you know, obviously you've been led up to this bear Jew moment, and Tarantino I think is also a master of introducing characters, and we really get the introduction to him there. And he does look imposing when he does walk out with the bat. It's just when he opens his mouth, kind of ruins the scene. Unfortunately, because it's a great scene that Brad Pitt's been fucking killing this entire moment, and even the German actor in it. Yeah, I mean, what a great delivery. He'd rather die than give up. Like, what a great delivery. You know, the whole thing is fantastic. And then, unfortunately, Eli Roth comes out and, yeah, drops the fucking ball. I mean, I guess it's better than Tarantino playing it. So I guess, you know, we do have to take there is that. slight wins where, the, where we can get them. What's Eli Roth up to these days? He is, he is finally doing something that I'm very excited about. Green Inferno? Is that the last one he, he is filming, and hopefully it'll be out this fall or at least next fall. He is filming Thanksgiving. Remember the trailer he had in Death Proof? Oh, yeah. The horror film for Thanksgiving? He is actually filming that. That's going to be a real thing. Excellent. It was my favorite trailer in the Death... in the, I'm sorry, in um, Grindhouse. And yeah. so I'm hoping... I was always, always would have loved to have seen that as a film because it's so fucking ridiculous. Especially if anyone remembers in the trailer, the killer ends... It's fucking you, the dead grandma who's a part turkey. Like, it's a fucking hilarious towards the end that it gets really wild. So I'm wondering to see if Eli Roth is going to be allowed to go the length and if he'll actually keep, like, Michael Bean and those people who... Who are in it in it we'll, we'll have to find out it'll be fun yeah. that's what eli's doing now he's at least doing something that maybe can make up for this abysmal two films he was in but this also means that if if that gets made then we are two out of five movies that have uh, fake traders because machete right yes one. machete yep and machete has got... three sequels two sequels yeah. actually <laughs> there's rumored and danny trail's pushing for it Dude, there's Machete on the Moon. Machete in Space. Yes, yeah. Machete in Space. So, yeah, yes, yeah. please. I don't care why. Yes, please. Because it's just fucking ridiculous. And actually, go back to Edgar Wright. He did don't. Yeah, and they did ask him. He said, he said, there's nothing else I could do than what I did in that trailer. He goes, I have no story. He goes, everything I had for that moment is in the trailer. Like I just made this small trailer because yeah. I have nothing. Like I have no three theme for that. There's Nicolas Cage also in the uh, She-Wolves, uh, the Nazi She-Wolves. Nazi women of the SS. Yes. So actually, I tell it a lie because Hobo with a Shotgun also was a movie. Yes. Well, that, was that in these trailers? though as oh sorry it was in selected theaters because yes. it it won a trailer contest so yes. uh, but um so we're like nearly we've nearly got all of these these fake trailers yeah. like we're not yeah. far off what one am i missing don't nazi women in the ss machete there's there's machete. five total right there's five yeah yeah so we'll see how thanksgiving turns out but it leads us to track six 
One Silver Dollar or Un Dularo Bugato by Gianni Ferrero. Ferrero was an Italian composer, conductor, and music arranger. He composed over 120 soundtracks for mostly spaghetti westerns and Italian sex comedies. This song was the theme song for the 1965 Giorgio Stagani spaghetti western, Blood for a Silver Dollar. And this song can be heard in the cafe when Frederick Zoller pops in to say hi to Shoshana, and she's so enthused to see him. <laughs> she's the most French she is in that moment. Um, again, it's a... It's like a lot of you know songs we get in some of the movies where it's just in the background. It works as great background filler. If I heard it right now, unless I was listening to the thing, I would not know that it was part of the movie. Because what is happening between the two of them and then where the transition of her realizing that he's more... He's a transformer. He's more than meets the eye. Yeah, it's yeah. a great Bumblebee. moment in that film. And that the music is just there for background and for ambiance and... Whether we understand what's going on with that music does not matter. It, we need to be focusing on this pivotal moment because it's the moment that she slowly starts to see him as more than just a German. And when she starts to feel that way, that's when she gets up and gets huffy puffy and walks out because she remembers what the Nazis did. And so I think it's a great moment. And a lot of people miss that. They just think she's being a bitch. But she starts to see him as a, as a human being, which is why when she eventually shoots him, she feels that same thing. because She sees him out there and she realizes that sometimes you aren't the uniform you're wearing. Yeah, yeah. So it's this great moment that, again, it's that subtext that sometimes people don't get out of his films. And so this is the moment that sells that moment and so this song you know outside outside of it being like some weird i don't know banjo or something you know we would be taken out so yeah and i i think it has to work like that there has to be kind of you don't even realize it's going on because listening to it in isolation today when Mm -hmm. i was kind of going through this it feels like something that would be more at home in like a early like disney animation kind of movie and also it feels a bit too obvious of like kind of what it's trying to make you feel this kind of like trepidation and like mm-hmm. as it was it wasn't for me but where it's just kind of the ambient music in the room fine the weird thing is and we might talk about this later but i think there was like another 14 tracks that didn't make it onto mm-hmm. the the soundtrack i think a lot of it is also depends on how much people are willing from you know some of these sean wheeler he runs his own little record company called Scarefly Records and you know he's had the opportunity to get some some older films soundtracks and put them on vinyl for the first time. Yeah. And sometimes there are these really niche boutiques or people who own the rights to certain you know films you're kind of like how the fuck did they get these? And sometimes they can be real fucking douches and don't want to give it up or want too much money. So getting it in the film, paying a small fee and getting it on a record which now they get you know residuals from are two different monsters, and probably he was just like, all right, so these are the ones I can I can secure for the actual soundtrack that we sell, and the rest is like, that's just going to be what it is. I'll just keep it where it is. So it just comes down to money and contracts and stupidity, but that's how, unfortunately, the beast is for some of these yeah. soundtracks. I just wonder as well, though, like, even in that, this soundtrack, they could cut this out of the soundtrack, and I would, like, it could be one track less, and it would be fine. Mm-hmm. It's strange to me that this was, and okay, yeah, with the 14 they're excluded, maybe there are other reasons for that but it just it feels weird to me that this it's not a particularly standout piece of music you don't you wouldn't hear it and think oh yeah that's that song from glorious bastards so yeah it's just a strange one for me that it made it on on the track listing it may just be one of those songs that hasn't been on a soundtrack before or it hasn't been out in print in a while. you know what i mean it's one of those like almost i'm a hipster yeah, yeah. i got on my zoom <laughs> drag you know what i mean that kind of like win for him but who knows yeah. what makes on why it makes on and why it doesn't yeah yeah because there, there are certain times he's put certain of his dialogue tracks on and you go 
of all the dialogue tracks you pick from this film, you put that one on? You know what I mean? Like, you miss this one and this one and this one? We talked about on Death Proof. Like, there are some you're kind of like, wow, like, not even the Death Proof? That doesn't make it on? You know, like, the talk with the girls about why you shouldn't have a gun? <laughs> None of those great moments make it on. Some of the other ones, you're kind of like, oh, that made it on? You know, you're kind of like, oh, all right. You're the, you're the director. Yeah, yeah. But it takes us to another memorable song. <laughs> I'm looking forward to this. Number seven. And <laughs> I'm going to have fun because it's a German song, and I'm going to do it as angry as I possibly can. The Von Gigi from Zara Leander. Leander was a Swedish singer and actress in the late 30s and 40s. She rose to prominence in Germany between 1936 and 1943, where she was contracted to work by the state-owned Universal Film AG. She is believed to be one of the highest-grossing European singers during that time. Period. However, due to her contract with UFA, her films and music have been identified as Nazi propaganda. Although she never publicly took a political position and was dubbed an enemy of Germany by Joseph Goebbels, she remained a controversial figure for the rest of her life. This song can be heard over the restaurant speakers during Shoshana's unexpected meeting with Private Zoller and Mr. Goebbels, which then would eventually lead into the scariest and most delicious looking piece of strudel you've ever seen in your life. So I don't know if anyone's ever tried to eat some kind of confectionery while your asshole cannot pass a chickpea, but hey, <laughs> in this film, they tried both. So <laughs> Yeah, this is this is true. I, I think I probably spoke about this before, but I've got like the, the Blu-ray special edition that had a recipe card for the strudel. Mm. I haven't made it yet, but I need to I need to dig it out. This is like what I was talking about earlier. This is the first song that sounds like it, begin, it belongs in a World War II movie, right? It's the first sniff that we've got that we're in Nazi-occupied France, that there's a war going on at all. And my German is not good. I have no idea what this woman is singing about. Mm-mm. But this is my... my this is I've got two note, two more notes on this, right? 100% sounds like what you'd expect to be playing in 1940s Berlin. Obviously, we're not in Berlin, we're in France. Mm-hmm. It even has... It's got the vinyl crackle to it, right? It, it sounds like it's that period. So then I looked in, have you looked into Zara Leander? The, I have the not yet. No. So she was Swedish, but she was contracted to produce music for the state-owned movie company Universum Film AG or UFA between 1936 and 1943. She was basically the voice of Nazi propaganda music in, in their movies. It sounds like it. Like, that's what I thought, that this is the, the music of the age in, in Germany. And sure enough, she was contracted by them to produce this stuff. But and it, interestingly, I think it said something about how the records, there's not like accurate records, but they think that based on this um, and the fact that she was kind of contra- contracted to this film company, she's probably one of the biggest selling artists in Europe for this time period. That would make sense. Yeah. So yeah. there you go. There's, there's a little history lesson for you. And it works since since this is also part of the, uh, part of the ruse to take out the Nazi high command is... By someone pretending to be a film critic of German yep. film. So it all, I mean, look, this is what the man does. The man knows his stuff. He did he his research. His he knows what the fuck he's doing. And then again, like I said, this is one of those intentional things. It's a it's a big dick energy move is what it is. It's like, hey, I've got this song on here. And when you find yeah. out what it is, you'll be like, holy shit. And he's like, yeah, I know. He's like, no, no. Which is you a good thought move. it'd be yeah. anything else? You yeah, thought this exactly. would just be a random song? And he's Come almost on, like, guys. of course I did. Almost like he's upset oh. that you would even question it. Like, yeah, of course yeah. I did. Of course I did. Yeah. And whilst I was doing this. You know, I was picking out feet. <laughs> I was helping Barbie figure out how we would show feet. <laughs> <laughs> but it takes us to song number eight, The Man with the Big Sombrero by Samantha Shelton and Michael Andrew. This song was written by Phil Boutelet and Foster Carling and originally performed by June Havoc for the 1943 Andrew L. Stone American comedy film, High Diddle Diddle. The song was re-recorded in French by Samantha Shelton and Michael Andrew. 
promotional music video for this film was shot using the scene from the movie Hi Diddle Diddle. Samantha Shelton was digitally inserted into the scene to replace June Havoc. This song is playing in the basement bar when Bridget von Hammersmark gets up and leaves the German soldier's table and sits down with the bastards who are surprised to see so many Germans in this bar. And this is a song, as I probably just told you in the pre-notes, that was re-recorded in French. It comes from a yeah. different place. Again... The two songs that follow each other, back-to-back, this and Song 9, are both from the basement. Both of them fit the moment. Both of them fit exactly what they're supposed to be. But because of what is happening in that scene, and if it hadn't been for the opening scene, this scene would be the most standout scene in the film. You don't even pay any attention to what's being... Like, literally, they could be playing the Mickey Mouse theme song in German in the back, and no one gives a shit because you are so locked in. To the unbelievable ping pong match of people coming in and talking and the different things that move. And we're playing this game and trying to learn about who's coming to this premiere and all this stuff. That you honestly, Tarantino himself could have just hummed in the background. And I would not have cared or even known. And to be honest with you, until I listened to the song, I was like, and I had to look where it was from. I was like, oh yeah, that's right. Like. Wouldn't have picked it out. Like, I would literally lose musical jeopardy if they said, what movie is this from? I'd be like, I have no fucking clue. Because I'm not paying attention in that moment to yeah. what song is playing. Because it's such an amazing moment. So we're, we're back to... Uh, Tarantino has got an obsession with feet, we know. But he's back to being on the nose again with this one, right? <laughs> the, he's playing a song about a man with a big sombrero just before a Mexican standoff. We're having a French song about a Mexican played in a German bar before mm-hmm. a Mexican standoff with Nazis. Like, I, I get it. And mm-hmm. fair fucks. Because also, <laughs> it's, it is so on the nose. But like you say, it's such an under-the-radar song that no one would know it was completely on the nose mm. until you look into it and then you realise it's really on the fucking nose. But yeah, I, I mean, you know what? I take I take my big sombrero off to the guy <laughs> because he does it. He does it. He does it well. Well, not only does he do it well with that song, but he fucking does it again in song number nine. And song number nine is equal to equal in Hun, probably from someone you may have heard if you watch this movie, Lillian Harvey and Willie Frisch. Lillian Harvey was a British-born German actress and singer. She is best known for her role as Christelle Weinzinger in the 1931 film *The Congo Due to her Hollywood friendships, or as the Gestapo put it, Jewish colleagues, and after bailing out choreographer Jens Keith, who was accused of being a homosexual by Nazi authorities, Harvey left Germany in 1939, and in 1943 had her citizenship officially revoked after performing for the French troops. This song is a duet she performed with German actor Willy Frisch in the 1936 film Lucky Kids. The English translation of the song title is I Wish I Were a Chicken. This is the second song that plays during the basement scene, and for those of you who don't know, and I may have said this prior, so I apologize if I'm repeating this because I record that stuff after. Lillian Harvey is the female... She was a Jewish actress who turned coated against the Germans, who fucking Goebbels loses his fucking mind over when he's walking out of the theater and someone brought up something about the Lillian, Har- a Lillian Harvey movie and he loses his mind and storms out of Shoshana's theater. Lillian Harvey makes a song that she made. She's a Jewish singer and actress and her song gets played. And that is another Mr. Mr. Tarantino just going... I know more than you. <laughs> Just I'm better at this than you. But the other thing, I don't know, with the Lillian Harvey thing. So basically, she's she's British born, but plied her trade in Germany as an actress and singer, and obviously she's performing in perfect German. And then you've also got this whole piece that's happening alongside it because Archie Hiscock, Hiscock is mm-hmm. a British born guy 
masquerading as a German. So again, <laughs> there's there's levels to this stuff, and he um, I can only imagine that he's just so he's he's in the corner just wanking himself off. Oh, absolutely, he, oh, absolutely. He just he, is. he loves this shit. He's he just is like, looking yeah. at himself in a mirror while he's jacking yeah. off. He is not, not even looking at anyone else. He's looking at himself. He's yeah. like, yeah, he's you're like, so yeah. smart. Uh, yeah. Yeah, she You're was so she good. was British. Yeah, it says Archie. Yeah. Oh, and and yeah. she was Jewish. And oh, 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 yeah. Here it comes. All right. <laughs> He's having a Mexican standoff with himself in a mirror. <laughs> Who's gonna shoot first? Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it, this one feels like we're firmly in like Germany and the war territory, right? Yes. Like, and it's one of the ones where I think if you go back through this, maybe the one silver dollar is maybe the exception, but this is one of the songs, like the in-universe songs where the characters are hearing the music too. They all feel like they fit. Whereas yes. everything else is Tarantino taking this massive artistic license and basically turning this into a spaghetti western with his, <laughs> mm-hmm. with his music choices. Yeah, it, it feels like the these instances where we truly feel like the... But he, and he's picked them really well, right? These it, Absolutely similar to the one I was saying about with um, Zara Leander. The, mm-hmm. I'm not even going to pronounce it, but that feels like a song that should be playing to German people in the 1940s, and this this is very very similar. But yeah, it's, it's really good it's great and again like you say this this is a fantastic scene it's it's so so good yeah and that's i think what the uh the cool part of what tarantino did with it with dropping these two songs in is you don't pay attention to them but he knows that they're there you know what i mean like he knows why he chose them you may never know but to him it like it gives him that little chuckle that jolly feeling of like yeah I'm that good. You know what I mean? And now, 15 years later, two fucking guys on the opposite sides of the pond are finally pontificating about it and talking about it. So that'll take us to number 10. Main theme from Dark of the Sun by Jacques Luzer. Luzer was a French pianist and composer. He composed the song for the 1968 British adventure war film, Dark of the Sun, also known as The Mercenaries. The film stars Rod Taylor and Jim Brown. This film was so influential on QT that he not only included music from its soundtrack, but he also cast Rod Taylor as Churchill in this film. And Shoshana's alias, Emmanuel Mimou, is a reference to actress Yvette Mimou, who co-starred in The Dark of the Sun. This song can be heard while Miss Bridget von Hammersmark is on the vet's operating table. Now, like you said, I feel this is a very French-esque song. We're in a French vet hospital. Seems like this was something that we would be hearing. It does not feel like we should be listening to Kiss, <laughs> Lick It Up, or anything like that <laughs> at this moment. It feels like this is the stuff. You know, as, as much as Tarantino loves his needle drops when he's starting to get into these period pieces which he really starts to after basically starting with this film because then the next four films within glorious bastards included they are period piece movies you know they're yeah. they're set in a time frame this is obviously set in the 1940s during the war uh Django's set in um pre-civil war the south in america so 18 1860s 1870s time frame and then you've got the hateful eight which is set just after that so the late 1800s right before the 1900s start and then we go to 19 late 1960s hollywood after that so all of those will have music and stuff that are you know somewhat except for Django, in their time frame so as a person i think as a great film director he realizes i it just can't all be needle drops certain yeah. parts and the next song after this we'll get into certain ones allow for it but certain moments have to have music of the time when we're at the restaurant it's got to have music of the time if we're in the bar it's got to have music of the time if i'm in this french 
whatever vet hospital. It needs that music at the time. You know what I mean? It, it can't have <laughs> the Strokes playing. The Beatles are not playing over the yeah, soundtrack yeah. at this moment. We can't have an Elvis tune. It's not going to work. So as much as he is a master of needle drops, he also, you know, he is a student of film. So he knows that now that I've gone into t- period pieces, I don't have carte blanche with all the music I want to throw in. I do have to be selective, even if it's tongue-in-cheek, very, you know, artsy, Ah, look what I did. Selections. At least he knows I have to have something that fits for this scene at this moment. I feel like there is, there's, he's got this, I mentioned it with the previous ones, but he's got a clear distinction with music that is coming out of speakers that the people in the movie mm-hmm. are hearing versus stuff that just we're hearing as the audience is an overlay to yes. what's going on. And he does it, he does it very well. The one thing I would say from this, this song is, all I could think about again. It's one of these. It's a weird one because when you listen, to, when you listen to it in isolation, you don't have the scene playing over. You don't have the dialogue. You're just listening to this song, and all I could think about is like it sounds like something straight out of the Pink Panther. That's that's <laughs> where my mind went, and it is very much like because they're kind of coming up with Plan B at mm-hmm. this point, right? Yeah, and it is definitely like oh, we're hatching a plan kind of music. <laughs> yes, and it's not my favorite on the soundtrack, but you know, no, it does no. it does what it does. Yeah, it's all good. It's because you don't speak Italian. Yeah, it's that third best. <laughs> <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> Which ends up being the best. Dominic the Coco. Bravo. Bravo. <laughs> you know, like I said, there's a couple of songs on the soundtrack that make it that are just background. And the movie's Inglorious Bastards. It needs to ha- it has to have a, have a time frame. Like, you're not listening to, um, God, what's your favorite World War II movie that by Christopher Nolan? Why am I blanking right now? Did you guys lose yourself over? It's like our Saving Private Ryan. Dunkirk. <laughs> Dunkirk. Yeah, your Saving Private Ryan. Dunkirk. You're not getting that soundtrack going, I can't wait until so and so is playing. You know, David Bowie comes on. That's not happening yeah, in yeah. that one. You know, so, you know, the expectations. I know that, like, Inglorious Bastards probably doesn't have the sales. Because it's a timepiece movie. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't allow for what it does in Django. You aren't able to bring in rap music because it doesn't fit the cultural relevance of the film. Doesn't yeah. make sense, right? Like Tupac having a song in Glorious Bastards makes no sense unless he was doing the Crows version where it would have been like a, a black unit of kind of like the Dirty Dozen slash Glorious Bastards we talked about. Then that can work, but it doesn't work with a bunch of white Jewish guys attacking. The Germans it just doesn't play the same. No, no, not at all. We'll, we'll move on as we get to yeah. number eleven. The one you've been quietly waiting for—it's Cat People putting out fire by the late great David Bowie. This song comes from the 1982 Paul Schrader supernatural horror film Cat People, and would later appear as a track on Bowie's 1983 album Let's Dance. The song was a number one hit in Finland, New Zealand, Norway, and Sweden, while it only peaked at number 67 on the Billboard Hot 100 chart in America and at number 26 on the UK Singles chart. The song also appears in the 1998 film Firestorm and 2017's Atomic Blonde. Now this song kicks in as Shoshana getting ready for the premiere of Nation's Pride. And it really is the full start. It's like the anthem to the beginning of the third act of this film. Just like you aren't prepared for a David Bowie song, to come on in 1940s Nazi-occupied France, neither are you prepared for what the fuck is about to happen as the last act fucking unspools itself in the theater. Yeah, it's it's such a it, it's such a kind of building to the crescendo piece, and that I mean that's how this song starts as well. Mm-hmm. Right? It's such a slow kind of methodical beginning that then explodes into this kind of powerful piece of music that's just. It's just brilliant. Um, I mean, I could I could wax lyrical about Bowie all day long, but and again, I've 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 criticised him for being too on the nose in some instances before, and I'm an absolute hypocrite 
but it just works so well how on the nose he is with some of the stuff in here. <laughs> it's another borrowed song from another movie. So Cat People was a 80s movie that mm-hmm. was literally about body horror about cat people, which is, I've never seen it. It sounds awful. But the thing I find insane about it and you know we talk about how some of these so we spoke earlier about how some music is completely intertwined with the movies they're from right so with, with um Merceau and um and Steelers Will in, in um Reservoir Dogs Cat People is a song that is up there with Purple Rain where I think ni- 90% of people will know the song, but not necessarily know it's associated with a movie that is named after. This is fair. This is very fair. I-, I would agree with you. And it's one of those songs that also, so there are two Tarantino songs that were used, well, that he brought alive in his movies. It's not like he launched them, you know what I mean? This song was also then featured eight years later in a film that I absolutely love called Atomic Blonde with Charlize Theron. It is the opening title song for that movie. It's also a, uh, a movie during the early days of the Cold War when Germany is broken into East and West and she plays a spy. Have you seen that film? I haven't, no. It's one of those ones that I've always been meaning to get to, but I've, uh, yeah, I've never, never seen it. So it's one of those moments when you hear it as a Tarantino fan, you're like, holy shit. There's no doubt in my mind that obviously, you know, it made it in. And so obviously other people are going to use it too. So, you know, he's not the only person who gets to use it. But that and also Hooked on a Feeling by Blue Swede was played in Guardians of the Galaxy, which I love Guardians yep. of the Galaxy. So I, there have been two incidences where songs of Tarantino's that he's put into his films make it into other films, and you don't think there's no way someone else can use it. But I want to give you know tip of the hat because those two films, in my opinion, did a great job of incorporating those songs, which had already had a life of their own from other films and did wait a significant amount of time for them to put them in. But they really do work. And I think I cut you off accidentally, so I do apologize. You were about to ask me something. Have you seen Purple Rain? I have. What a piece of garbage that is. Yes. Prince <laughs> is one of the greatest artists to ever have walked the earth. Maybe Absolutely. the greatest guitar player to ever live. And I know that sounds strange because a lot of people don't know Prince as a guitar player. All I say is look at the induction of George Harris into the Rock and Roll of Fame and see his guitar Just solo about uh, when he's that. up on stage with all these amazing guitarists and even yeah. before he went off the deep end, uh, Mr. Eric Clapton. But we shouldn't be surprised when old white men suddenly start sounding like old white men. Once when he was asked, what's it like to be the greatest guitar player to ever live? And he goes, I don't know. Ask Prince. So if Eric Clapton of Guitar yeah. Famous <laughs> asked that and he says Prince, then it's a pretty good standard that Prince is one of the greatest, if not the greatest, to ever walk. But yeah, Prince, like I said, great musician, but yeah. Yeah, his movies, that and he did another one, the uh, Over the Cherry Moon or something like that. Yeah. Also, best Super Bowl halftime performance ever. 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 It's, not, it's not a competition. I don't care. Anyone can write me a, ever. It's, it's over with. It's, it's signed, sealed, delivered, ever. Unbelievable. He plays Purple Rain as it's raining in Miami. Hello? Come on. Stop. Yeah. It's over. Done. He covered, <laughs> he covered the Foo Fighters. It's over with. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, he didn't yeah. need no special dancers. He fucking killed it by himself. Yeah. It's like uh, Whitney Houston has the greatest recording of our national anthem here in America from Super yep. Bowl 25. It's never been topped. It never will be topped. It's unfucking believable. Your, your national anthem for many years, I <laughs> thought, we, we may have said this before, or at least I've said it on, my, on our podcast, but I genuinely thought the lyrics were by the Dauntily Lights. And I did not know what the fuck a dauntily light was until I realized it's dawn's early light. We like our lights dauntily, just so you know. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, dear. How would you like me to turn the lights on? Can you dauntily turn them on, please? No, just, that's all right. Just dauntily. That'll take us to song number 12 and Tiger Tank from Lalo Schifrin. Lalo is an Argentine pianist, composer, arranger, and conductor. The song originally appears on the soundtrack for the 1970 World War II comedy heist film, Kelly's Heroes, starring Clint Eastwood, Telly Savalas, Don Rickles, and Donald Sutherland. Now, this song plays as Marcel sadly has to leave Shoshana, knowing that this will be the last time they will see each other. As he locks the doors to the theater, goes behind the screen to burn the pile of film stock that Mr. Samuel Jackson in voiceover told us just how fucking dangerous it truly was. Mm-hmm. You know, again, it's just that amping up. It, it's like that that song, we all know what's about to happen. I think we discussed it, uh, we've discussed it a number of times, I think we discussed it on the, uh, the the episode, and then I think over, actually, you know what, I lied, I've seen it before, we all did the 30th in, or the 60th birthday of uh, Tarantino this year. What a fucking asshole. Six months ago. What a fucking brick. Right before you had your son, I think, we did uh, record that. And we actually discussed this a little bit, that yeah. that plot, either way, it was going to happen. They were completely separate of each other, did not know of each other. And I love the fact that in the film, neither of them crossed paths and have any idea that something else is going on. Not once does Melanie Laurent's character interact with a single bastard. Not once. I love that fact that the two plots are separate they don't know each other you know what i mean like don't even run each other they don't talk to each other none of those things happen i think that's what's so amazing about how he wrote this film that even if and that's the great thing is meanwhile londa thinks he's some fucking big to do even if londa had called back to the theater and had all that stuff happened hitler wasn't getting out anyways they were burning the thing to the ground they had locked it up so i just love the fact that regardless hitler and the high command had no idea that that night one way or the other they they were going to be killed I just think that's so fucking cool. I just love that about that. Yeah, I, I think it's it's also a bit of a nod to like the futility of war, right? Like, yeah. Melanie Ron has had this massive, you know, she's had this massive revenge arc. She's gonna, you know, she's had this insane plan that she's gonna trying to figure out. Well, it falls in her lap, which is the cool, you know, which is the yeah. the interesting thing about it. Absolutely, but also she could have done nothing, and there was a they would have been probably taken out anyway. Yeah, and oh, that's what I love about it. Either way, one plan does not need the other to work. It, one no. way or the other, one of them is going to work. Like, for them to neither work would be a whole kind of craziness to for that to have happened. Yeah, and also, like, Maybe if she hadn't gone down that route and, you know, I say left up to the bastards, she didn't know. But if, you know, if they just kind of maybe she survives, right? Maybe maybe actually she has a happier ending. But or also, does she? Or does she? Yeah, it's interesting. But I do think it is, it is this kind of real kind of in war, everyone kind of loses. It, it, that's that's kind of one of the things that it kind of, you know, even though even though the bad guys are dead. So so a lot of the good guys in the situation and actually the worst guy in the movie yeah, yeah, he gets his he gets his branding, but he does. He kind of gets he gets off with it as well, right? So, as far as we can assume, one thing that I think is very interesting is Donowitz and the Coco. There, they were supposed to leave their fucking dynamite under their seat to blow up the auditorium. Yeah. They almost fucked this up. If it hadn't been for Shoshana and Marcel locking the doors and starting the fire, a lot of them would have escaped. I mean, he would have they would have killed Hitler, which probably would have ended the war anyways. But they ended up blowing themselves up. And the whole thing, you know, from the top and the fire. So that all kind of combined. But they were supposed to leave that underneath. They got so fucking eager to go kill Hitler that fucking Donowitz almost ruins this fucking mission. Yeah. Think about it. If they hadn't made it and they got stopped by those guards or whatever, he would have ruined the mission. If he doesn't kill Hitler on the attempt there and they left their dynamite under their seats, it's still going to blow up. 
It's still going to take out the theater. And there's probably a really good chance it still kills Hitler. Right? But they almost fucked this whole thing up, those two fucking idiots. <laughs> Something to think about, you know? We always forget that they kick open the door, but their job was not to go up there and shoot Hitler. Their job was to leave the dynamite and blow the fucking theater up. And then I think some of it was that they were going to be outside waiting and then kill, you know, Hitler, you know what I mean? Like whoever comes out, whoever's able to survive. That was really Anyone kind was, of the plan. Yeah. 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 It, wasn't a, it wasn't a suicide mission. I mean, it would have been. Like, obviously, they would have stayed there and blown up with it to make sure that it went down. But in the same respect, those fucking morons almost blew it. And thank God for fucking Shoshana and Marcel to at least be a backup plan they didn't know about to make sure this whole thing fucking went according to fucking plan. But this song kind of gives us that. It's like, okay, here, here it is. Like, we all know at this moment, it's like, all right, we're about to find out what's happening. Yeah. Like I said, we're, and we've kind of been cutting back and forth in this before this music plays, where we've been going back and forth to Londa and Eldo, and we, we don't know if he's going to allow this to happen, what's going to, you know, what's going to actually go down. So, a lot of tension built. It's, again, it's one of these ones that is a, you know, it's, it's definitely a World War II kind of. Yeah. Um, oh yeah, but it, it's come from a, a a comedy film, this Kelly's Heroes that it's originally in, which is a, a like a World War Two caper, <laughs> which is quite interesting to throw, you know, in one of the more kind of pivotal, quite sinister points of the movie that he's picked up a song from what's essentially a, a, a comedy <laughs> film. Um, so yeah, just just another bit of a QT being QT, I think. That leads us to song 13, one of two closing songs from Mr. Ennio Morricone, and this one is Un Amico. This song comes from the 1973 Sergio Solima Polizetico film Revolver, and it's the third of four Morricone musical compositions on the soundtrack. This song plays when Shoshana shoots Zoller and then goes back over to check on him, much to her detriment. Again, this is another perfectly placed song. And as I just said a second ago that you don't hear, but you'll hear when you listen to the episode, it comes from a movie called Revolver. Very interesting. That is kind of like a tongue-in-cheek moment, too, when you look into it. But the fact that Shoshana shoots him because she's just had enough and she knows she's got to because he may try to stop this if he finds out what's going on. But it's that moment when she does and she looks out, like we talked about earlier, and she looks out into the theater and he's up there and she can see him reliving on screen what he had to go through in that bell tower and realizes he really is human after all and he had no other recourse he wasn't invading or going into her home he had no other recourse but to do what he had to do to try to survive she sees him like i said as a person she at that moment she doesn't see him as a nazi or as a german soldier she sees him as another human being who Mm -hmm. is living out the reality of the world that he has been born into and even though some could say like you know when she does get shot by him you're kind of like oh that fucker but he was been nothing but nice to her the entire time like he has done nothing but be nice to her he just you know he even knows that she he probably bothers her but he thinks she's attractive and i know that uh, ian thinks that it's uh, unwanted um <laughs> advancement i don't think it is that i just think it's someone who's a film person he's got a kinder spirit and he just wants someone else to talk to who's not military and about the war you know and look the fact that she's attractive in french Probably didn't hurt, but I never got the sense that Zoller was this type who was going to force himself on her because he could have. He could have at any moment. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I've I never felt that way about that. about that. I know that Zoller is obviously a German, and yes, obviously, but it's also the 1940s. And given what he could have done, he never does, and he does try to be very polite. And I don't know, he just 
I think he kind of wants to try to impress her. He wants her to see him as something more than just a uniform, you know, and, you know, yeah. and, and he and he doesn't walk around and he hates the fact that everyone recognizes him. You know, he's not that flashy person that he could have been, you know, that I think in her mind he would have been being that he is fighting in the German army. Yeah. And I mean, to be fair to the guy, I would crawl through broken glass to get a date with Madeline on. So um, I, I can't. Have you seen her in the Michael Bay film? <laughs> Which is no. a very synergetic thing because uh, at the month that this comes out, I've just finished a five and a half hour recording with Steve Smith, my partner on the Cheeky Bastards, and Petros. And we went through all 15 of Michael Bay's movies. And one of them is Six Underground. And she is in it. And she is in some white lingerie. And there's a couple of sex scenes. And she is spectacular in that. But so I agree with you. I would have I would have Jane side into a whore for Melanie Laurent. <laughs> be honest with you. I mean, I, I I fell in love with her with this in this movie. You know she, uh, you know she's a musician as well. Of course she is. Yeah, she's got a, a song of hers called "Kiss," um, which is very good. It's um, uh, it's she, uh, it's it. her version of uh, Prince. <laughs> I don't no, I don't think so. It's very, it's very much in French. Um, so it could be because my French is not good, but um, it's absolutely worth uh, worth listening to. Well, I'm not saying you should watch some of his movies, but if, if you really want to see a little bit of her, she's a badass in it. It's an eh, it's an alright movie, but you get to see her scantily clad and killing some people. So you know, it's, <laughs> it's kind of what you were hoping Shoshana would do. If Inglorious Bastards went full on exploitation film, this that's what she yeah. would be. That's what that's what would have happened for her. How the fuck have I never heard of this movie? Ryan Reynolds is uh... because it came out in 2019 and it was a Netflix movie. In uh, fairness, okay. it's one of the better straight to Netflix movies that came out. The, and that's not um, saying a lot, but it's a, a no. one of the straight to you know Netflix action movies. It's actually pretty decent. It's decent. I'm looking at the the poster; looks fucking terrible. But like um, I said, it's look, it's mindless. But I, the reason I'm telling you is you get to see her in some sex scenes. She's not necessarily new, but she's very scantily clad, and she's also fucking badass in it. Like she she yeah, she kills a lot of people. So like I said, that's the only, that's the only connection I'm making here with you. I don't want you to go and watch this later and be like, I haven't seen a movie in five months, and this be the movie. You'd be like that motherfucker. I'm never on that podcast again. So I don't want you to I don't want you to get confused. Fair. And also talking of straight to Netflix movies, uh, the the best one I think I've seen in recent times was Extraction with the whole like continuous. Yes, that is very synergetic with the saying. Yes, that was yeah. a very good. One. Extraction two is okay. It's okay. I haven't yeah. seen Extraction two, but anyway, back to Anamiko. It is it's a really beautiful piece of music, right? Like for a, for a death scene, it's and also there's we talked about how Edgar Wright does the beats with the. This is. Quite close yep. to it because you have mm-hmm. the drums come in just as the the shots fired, yep. um, which is it's just really really great and it's very sad. It is, yeah, yeah, I agree. Because what I loved about what Tarantino was able to do with this film is Londa's the, in my opinion, far eviler person. I'm probably not saying that properly. <laughs> he is the worst of the worst. He's worse than Hitler, in my opinion, because he's cold and calculating right he sees this as a job he has no problem that he just obliterated an entire family of jews yeah, yeah. he doesn't even have a problem with them so like at it's least you know what i mean like you go jesus that's a f-. and if he had run the if he was in charge holy shit world war ii would have lasted forever the germans probably yeah. would have won and then you yeah. get zoller and we're supposed to hate him because he's in the german uniform so that's what we're supposed to but you don't hate zoller he's a little annoying but there's nothing about Frederick Zoller where I go, fuck this guy. He's not that bad a person. He, you, you, you see him as more than just his uniform. And I, that's what I love yeah. about this moment is like, you know, we're, we're rooting for Shoshana. But at the end of the day, it's that I like how he's making like war is not always so black and white. 
You know what I mean? Like, not everybody on each side is a good person. I mean, the bastards are borderline fucking psychopaths themselves. Absolutely. And then, I think the movie that that does the the best job of showing that not everyone on the German side was an awful person is Jojo Rabbit. Oh my god, I, I think. love that movie. Fantastic. Oh. One of one of my all time yep. top movies yes. ever. Oh, what an amazing so film! Uh, but you know, I mean, and uh, it, Taika Waititi talks about it a lot in that he was he wanted to film a movie that was set in Germany in the middle of the war that wasn't kind of dark and gray and everything. everything's bright and colorful right these people were just living out their lives just under an awful regime and yeah it's it's that kind of humanizing of the people right they're not just a quote-unquote they're not just a Nazi they are a person that has happened to fall into the wrong side of history and yeah, it's an interesting it's an interesting um, take because I don't think, and certainly I think you know I guess with the hangover from World War Two mm-hmm. has lasted a long time. There's a lot of people that were affected and still alive but affected by it. So I think only now in recent times where you're kind of getting the opportunity where people are taking that liberty and actually exploring. Okay, well, what was it like to be, you know, yeah. German during this this time and what you know who were the actual people behind the, the uniforms and things? And look, let me get wrong there's a lot of people there that were absolutely horrendous individuals mm-hmm. but that wasn't the entirety of the, the german population and it's it's interesting to see that coming out no you had a choice you either joined or died and so if you have a family yeah. like you have a family now if given the choice you're either going to do a horrible thing or your family's going to be murdered which one are you picking we're all yeah. going to pick yeah. our family as much as we yeah. would all like to think that we're noble and great, we are going to pick our family over other people. And that's just the way it is. And unfortunately, that's what happened a lot of. Just like in Jojo Rabbit, it's not as simple as, you know, oh, the Germans just hated everybody. No. Yeah, there's a lot of them who did. But it's, there was a lot of people who you had a choice. Either you join the German army and this war effort, or you will be shot in the streets just like the rest. And so yeah, yeah. when you have a family, you're going to do what you have to do to keep them alive. Even if it yeah, goes against say... all your moral... You know what I mean? All your morals and what you think of yourself as a person. When push comes to shove, you're going to do what you have to to you know make sure that you keep the survival of your family the number one priority. And you also have to take into account that there's a very different perception of reality that these people have had through the you know the the use of propaganda and stuff, which you know. Is... What? What are you talking about? Propaganda? <laughs> what? No, I don't believe any of that. It's fake news. <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. Um, but you know, like it, it comes up a lot in, in the fact that in Jojo Rabbit that he is completely taken in by the the mythos of Hitler as his imaginary friend and everything because of propaganda, and that's what's leached into the. And it, just one other thing, just on this on this um, on this piece of music, which again, as I say, is absolutely beautiful and it's so well placed in this. I don't know if I can think of any more kind of moving and beautiful death scenes in in movies. Certainly not in Tarantino movies. Anyway, we've we've borrowed from another genre here. Um, so the the revolver was a um, I can't pronounce it, but it's police or Tesco, which is a <laughs> subgenre of Italian crime movies. But again, like we're 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 way out of our um out <laughs> of our world one season. We're, we're picking from all over the shop, but it works. And you know, hats off to him. He know he just he just knows he just knows that's it. You know, yeah. he just knows what he's doing. And he finishes up the soundtrack with song fourteen, Rabia E. Tarantella from Mister Once Again Ennio Morricone. This song originally appeared on the soundtrack for the nineteen seventy four Italian historical drama film Alan Zanfam. The Tavani brothers, who directed this film, originally did not want to use any original music until a composer Giovanni Fusco introduced them to Morricone. Now this song kicks in 
At the very end, as Eldo Rain carves a swastika into the forehead of Landa and declares it to be his masterpiece and continues on into the end credits. And what we can know that at the end of the end credits, he'll just get chewed out, but he's been chewed out before. So this is a great little song, too. It's just right. swarmy feel to it. Just this like, you know what? Yeah, you, you may be responsible for ending this war, but you're still a piece of shit. And you may get all this glory and pat on the back and history written about you, but everyone's going to know who the fuck you were. I love how Lana thinks he's so important. You'll be shot for this. Like, no, no, you're not as important as you think you are. You know what I mean? Like, you're not, trust me, pal. You're not that great. It's a great little ending piece uh, of music for, you know, his film. And it's a bit upbeat. And I've said before, a lot of his movies, even though they're dark and there's violence right before them, they usually end like on some upbeat music. Yeah. And I also, I think, I, I don't know. I obviously that this might, this, might just be my masterpiece is obviously directed as, uh, you know, we're, we're back to tarantino in his trailer with his uh looking at himself in the mirror oh he's, he's got his dick out he, now he's in a <laughs> yeah. he's in like one of those uh um enter the dragon mirrored rooms and it's a full-on tarantino <laughs> dick out yeah oh yeah we've got a all it's a bigger mexican jerk off than fucking true romance <laughs> But I do also feel that I, I like to think that he's also giving a bit of a nod to um to Ennio Morricone as well because he's this is a masterpiece of of uh of music mm-hmm. and, and obviously the guy is such a huge huge talent. But there's another. Did have you kind of dug into why this is another kind of Tarantino winking at the camera and over and over again? Feel free. It may have already played before we talked about, it, but feel free. So the music is, again, borrowed from another film. The film is called Alon Sanfan. Alon Sanfan translates to Arise Children. Arise Children are the, is the first words of the song Marseille, which is a French revolutionary song. And we have just watched a revolution happen in France against uh, the Third Reich. So, I mean, he's at, he's just at it again. He's, <laughs> he's back not only is the is it kind of 360 surround but he's beaming himself onto fucking cinema screens around the lot as well right he is he is loving it do you watch any american wrestling by chance i i used to back in the day he is he is he is in his rick flair mode right now right? Yes. he's like woo <laughs> he's like the nature boy he's like woo that's exactly what he's doing he is fucking going on a whole big thing about alligator <laughs> shoes and winding and down and he's like woo at the end of the fucking movie when fucking Brad Pitt looks at us. He is totally the Rick. He's yeah. the Ric Flair of fucking movies. That's I got to make a shirt for that. He's definitely the fucking <laughs> Ric Flair of movie making for sure. But but also I can't fault him, right? That is, that's clever. And if you dig in, it, it's going to pass by 99% of people because I didn't realize it until I started digging into things for, for researching for this episode. So. I the, the guy is meticulous, and this is why he makes movies that are as good as they are. I think there's a part of him that because he knows so much about film and has done so much research, it just has so much knowledge and has learned this stuff from other, you know, resources before. You know, like he knows other people doing similar things here and there in these different films. I don't think he's doing this necessarily for the modern audience. I think he's doing this so that when others like him or come down the path and they start to research, yeah. it's leaving the breadcrumbs of his genius, whether you were there to pay attention to it in the first place or not, but it'll echo throughout time. When people start to talk about him, I don't know if he even realizes he's doing this, but it's those breadcrumbs that, well, when you look back and you talk about them and like we do on this podcast and other people have done, and you start to really dig down into the, the roots, you start to realize what has gone into 
the films he makes and how much real work he puts into them. And maybe why he's only going to make 10 films because it's got to be fucking exhausting, right? Like he's just he not throwing was, together. He's just not throwing together a movie like, and again, just because we just talked about him, like Michael Bay, which is a big, gaudy, explosion-filled, you know, two-hour, two-and-a-half-hour summer popcorn film where you just go in there and, you know, turn your brain off and just have fun, right? Yeah. I mean, while those are a grandiose and probably take a ton of setup for all the facts and stuff, so I don't want to take anything away from those. He is going into a minutia and a level that is kind of like what Edgar Wright did, like putting together Baby Driver. It takes a real craftsman to dig in and do all the stuff they do. And I think maybe he's just like, look, after 10, he's already in the six. He's probably, you know, I just don't have the time. And he's got young children now, which is weird because he's old. He's much older than us. You know, I, I can, you know, as, as we dig through it, as much as I wish he would do more than 10, I can understand why he may bow out at 10 because when you write, that's all you have to worry about. And he can get better as a prose writer because, you know, I, he's probably not a great prose writer. He's a great script writer. But right now, you know, as his, he's writing books, he, he'll probably get, he'll get his, you know, feet under him. But he doesn't have to worry about layering so many things. He can just have fun in the moment and then walk away from it because I'm sure he just, you know, he's like that that chef who's got to get every ingredient just right. And, you know, he can now not have to worry about that as much after number 10. It's quality over quantity, right? That's that's Agreed. that's the route he's gone down. And, you know, I, I can't can't fault him for it. I'm I'm glad that he's he's gone that route. I, I agree. Yes, I'd love another 10, but are they going to be of the same quality? Probably not. And, you you know, you, you only have to look at how, like, how he reacted to Natural Born Killers, for example, as how he actually hates that movie, because he wrote it, but it <laughs> yeah. was not done in the way that he wanted it to be done. He's very particular, and that's that's why we get the movies that we've got out of him. You know, and obviously, if he, you know, if he was spent more time writing stuff we wouldn't get to see his brilliant acting turns like in little <laughs> or uh, some of the other uh, little places he pops up but this film or this i should say this soundtrack does have 14 other tracks heard in the film that do not appear on the original soundtrack release and the majority of them are selected score pieces and as we kind of got into earlier most likely has more to do with the fact that securing the rights to put it on a soundtrack was more of a pain in the ass than it was to get it in the film and this is also as we said earlier the First, and currently I believe only that I can think of, soundtrack of his that does not have dialogue tracks in it. And probably a lot mm -hmm. of that is due to the fact that majority of this film is either in French or German. Another trick that he was able to pull on the American movie audience of, I think 35% of this film is in English. And then the rest is in either French yeah. or German, which is brilliant. Yeah, I don't think it'll work any other way. I really don't. No. And I think a bit, uh, you, again... The way he's done it and he's gone out on unearthed i mean let's say i say unearthed because he was the first person that bought um christoph waltz to at least the hollywood audiences yes. like he's unearthed these great actors and actresses from yeah melanie Laurent as well right mm -hmm. i haven't ever seen her in anything else she's fantastic mm -hmm. he he didn't he's not this is a guy who could pretty much apart from will smith because will smith's an idiot and made wild wild west <laughs> instead no, no he didn't make wild west sorry that was instead of going in the matrix he made um men in black 2 instead of starring in django but like tarantino could pretty much call anyone up and say do you want to be in this movie and they're going to say yes right he could take he could make a huge ensemble cast of a-list Hollywood celebrities and put them into this movie and it just wouldn't work because you're not going to get, I don't know, you're not going to get um, De Niro learning French, right, to do this role as it as it should be done. So 
the fact that he and it, it speaks to him being meticulous it speaks to him making sure everything's going to be perfect he's gone he's spent the time you know that's got to be a hell of a casting effort oh, yes. to try and find these guys and he's made a movie that's that's fantastic and it just feels so much more authentic than if you were either to have people trying to like learn a language that they don't speak or just everything in in english because that i don't know I, I think it takes you out of it and I, i'm not a big fan of it can be done well like chernobyl the hbo series that was all in english yeah. but and they did it well but that's one of the you know that's it's few and far between that that they can pull that kind of stuff off let's ask our guest some fucking questions and we'll close this out now with your end questions i think i know number yeah. one but we'll ask it anyways what is your favorite track on this soundtrack and why is it unamico <laughs> yeah it's it's cat people uh, it is it's it's a it's an absolutely great song great scene i love bowie love tarantino it's like it's your two favorite ice cream flavors yeah. coming together <laughs> and which which is saying something for someone who's lactose intolerant but um yeah it's it's chef's kiss right yes love it now what is your least favorite track on this soundtrack uh one silver dollar as I said, it felt to me, and it's weird because it is a background thing. So I, I'm talking about in the sense of listening to it in isolation as part of the soundtrack. And it just, I, it, to me, it felt like it should be on a Disney animation <laughs> track rather than a Tarantino movie. But I think it works better in the, in the film itself where it's sort of a background piece. Now, what is your most underrated track on the soundtrack? So I've got, there's like three here that I've picked, right? So Slaughter. Unamico and the verdict is mm. quite is that's just like just a little bit behind. I don't know if I can call anything by Ennio Morricone underrated. True, so I think right? just because of that, I probably can't pick an Unamico despite it being an incredible. And look, don't worry, if cat people didn't exist, <laughs> as in the song, not actual cat people, that would be my number one pick here. I think I'm going to go Slaughter. Yeah. I think Slaughter is just it. As I said, a certified banger. It's just amazing. As I said, it, it probably should be in... It feels like it, it shouldn't be in this movie, but it works. And that's another reason why I think it's great. Yeah, I agree 100%. And lastly, where does this soundtrack rank for you in all of his soundtracks? So this was this was tricky, and I was trying to go back through everything. So for me, it's it, I think it comes in fourth, right? Oh, okay. So I've got Reservoir Dogs as number one. I've got Pulp Fiction as number two. Mm -hmm. I've got Django Unchained as number three. Okay. And then Inglorious Bastards. Oh, and wow. Django Unchained, I think, is, and I know you've obviously got this to come, but it's really hard to track down. And I was convinced for a long time that the song didn't actually exist and I'd made it up. But there's uh, the Rick Cross song, 100 Black yes. Coffins, is, uh, that's just on another level. Mm -hmm. That is such a good song. And recorded for that, that soundtrack. Exactly, yeah. And it was all produced by... Rizzo from yep, Blue and Band, right? I believe also co-written by Jamie Fox. Oh, really? I didn't realize that. So I, I, so because of that, I can't put it any higher. But yeah, solid fourth, I think. do it for this month's Hymno Devotional. I would once again like to thank my special guest, Sir Graham Jones, co-host of the podcast Nobody Asked For, for joining me. Now you can find the link to the podcast Nobody Asked For, along with their socials, in the show's notes. And as always, you can become a member of the Church of Tarantino by following us on all our socials. Those links can be found in our show notes as well. Now if you would be so kind and take a moment to like, 
review, subscribe, and follow us, the church would greatly appreciate it, as it will help other fellow Tarantino fans like yourselves find the show. So join me again next week as Ryan Rebelkin, host of the Rocky Series Podcast, the Worst of the Best Podcast, and it's a long road, the Rambo Series Podcast. And Mr. Pat Fournier, co-host of the B News USA Podcast, join me for a very special episode as we celebrate the 30th anniversary of True Romance. So until next time, this has been the Reverend Scott K. May Tarantino be with you always. Motherfucker. This has been a man with an exceptional beard production.